This morning we're continuing again in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, nearing the end in chapter 6. You can find it on page 1,163 of your pew Bibles. Nearing the end of Paul's letter, Paul has been speaking to three relationship groups. And we've looked at those the past two weeks, and now this being the third week. The two weeks ago, Paul first addressed wives and their husbands and the relationship of marriage and how the gospel shapes that relationship. And then last week, we saw the relationship between children and parents, specifically fathers, and how the gospel shapes that relationship. And we come to our third relationship, and one that may seem a bit odd to our modern culture, and that is the relationship between slaves and their masters. Slaves, or as the ESV says, bond servants, which is a polite way of saying slaves, bond servants or slaves and their masters. So if you would, open up your Bibles. We'll be looking at Ephesians chapter 6 verses 5 through 9, to hear the word of the Lord this morning. Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 5, with this specific relationship. Hear the word of the Lord. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, As you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant. Or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that though you have spoken in a particular place in time, that the word still applies for us who live nearly 2,000 years from when this was written. And so, Lord, we pray that through your spirit, you would speak today through this word, that you would use me in spite of my own sinfulness, in spite of my own weakness and frailty to proclaim your word, and that you would give us ears to hear and hearts and minds open and ready to hear what you would have to say to us through your word this day, O God, for your word goes forth and it does not fail to accomplish what you have said it will do so, and that is to change hearts. And so, God, work in us to change our hearts to be obedient to you, to believe your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, we have this delightful passage about slaves and masters. And before we really can do anything, we need to build some kind of bridge, a bridge between the first century A.D. Roman Empire and the nearly 2,000 years between then and modern America today. Because 
these words strike us in odd ways because of when we live today. After that, we will see how Paul then shows the gospel's implications to slaves or bond servants and masters. So bridging this cultural gap of nearly 2,000 years, we need to start with the giant elephant in the room. And that is that Paul does not tell masters to free their slaves. Paul does not write, slavery is an unjust practice. Christian masters, free your slaves for it is wrong. Paul doesn't write that. He seems to uphold slavery. You could even argue he supports slavery. One commentator writes that we want Paul to outlaw slavery, that our contemporary censors do not detect adequate contempt for slavery in Paul's words. See, Paul's words rankle us because of how opinions on slavery have changed over time. Slavery for us, in our culture, naturally makes us think of race and equality. We think of our nation's history with slavery and how we still carry the scars and consequences of those practices. In recent years, those scars have resurfaced as discussion has shifted from those obvious forms of slavery and racism to more subtle forms to an awareness of privilege, to systems that maintain an imbalanced social order. Now, we could chase those rabbit trails today, and many Christians have done so, and it's worthwhile to consider those. So if you'd like to talk about those things, I'm here. I'm happy to talk about those things. They, have, they are of great interest. Paul's not talking about those things. That is not his focus today. And so instead of chasing those rabbit trails and where they lead for our implications today, what I want us to see is what Paul is specifically writing, for it is not on those broader issues, but a very specific issue. And so to do that, we need to clear the elephant out of the room and understand the difference of slavery then and now. See, slavery during Paul's time was not based on race. That's different than what the Israelites experienced in Egypt, that the Hebrews were enslaved. Why? Because they were Hebrews, because they were different. They were enslaved. The same goes for Africans who were enslaved in America. They were enslaved because of who they were and what they looked like. In Paul's day, people of any race or ethnicity could become a slave. And so slavery was not something that racially separated people. It was not something that ethnically separated people. Rather, it was an economic and social separation. On some occasions, people even willingly entered into slavery. If they were very poor and had many debts, the way to pay off their debt was to become someone's slave. It was consistent employment. And perhaps someday they would work long enough they could buy their own freedom. So slavery was very different from the images that many of us share of our own history in America. One other thing we need to note as we're building this bridge is where Paul talks about this. These commands about slaves and masters follow immediately after marriage and parenting. 
it shows us that slaves were considered part of the household, that these people lived in close proximity and were tight with the family. And so as we think about slavery in Paul's time, we need to find some middle ground between the English servants of Downton Abbey in that era and African slavery in America, that there is some middle ground that they weren't as dignified, but they also weren't as abused in most instances. They were part of the family, but they were still property. They were cared for, but nothing protected them really from abuse. They were employees, but they had far more to do than today's employees do. And so in modern America today, we really struggle to find a comparison for what slavery was like in the Roman Empire of Paul's day. Employment, working, is the closest parallel, and it's really not even that close. Employees have rights today and protections today that slaves would not have had. We have the freedom to quit our job and get a new one, and we won't get in trouble most times. Our employers cannot threaten us with physical and bodily harm for failure to do our jobs well enough, or they shouldn't. Our families are not subservient to our employers, that by working there, it doesn't mean our families work there. And so if employment is the closest parallel, we still have to realize it is not an exact parallel in any way. But there are some similarities. See, in spite of the distinction, what we need to see is that even though slavery is worse than employment, Paul still commands them to obey their masters. One commentator says, instead of wiping these commands out of the Bible because we don't have slavery anymore, we need to see that if anything, these commands apply more to us because our situations are better He writes, if slaves and masters were obligated to demonstrate Christ to each other in a context of great inequity and inequality, then how much more should we be willing to represent Christ in our own work contexts? If our employer is unfair, that no more excuses us from acting with integrity than a slave was excused from Christ-likeness in a society that was far more unfair than our own. So he's saying we need to hear these words and hear that if people in worse situations were commanded to obey them, how much more should we in better situations obey them? But before we get to what it looks like to live this out, we have to stop and react. To finish this clearing out of the elephant and its dung in the room, And we need to really react to this in two major ways. And the first is we thank and we praise the Lord for removing slavery from most of the world, especially our own country. Praise God for that. Praise God that there is not slavery in our country today. Praise God that that is behind us. It still lingers. It still affects us in many ways. But it is behind us. And in many places in the world, it is not present. We are the exception in history, not the rule. Slavery has existed in most cultures throughout the history of mankind, and praise God it does not in ours today. 
So the first way we need to react is simple thankfulness that we don't have slaves to share this with. The second reaction, the gut reaction we need to get is we can grieve the sins of previous generations of Americans. To grieve the sins of Christian brothers and sisters of ages past who continued unjust practices, who demeaned fellow men and women and brothers and sisters in Christ, we can be sad for that. That those churches and preachers and Christians who would go around and use the Bible to keep people down, we can grieve that. It should hurt us that that was done in the name of Christ. Yes, we are thankful it is past, and yet it's still part of the legacy, unfortunately. See, we may look at this and we may feel uncomfortable that Paul did not say, end slavery, and then just move on to whatever he wanted to say next. But he didn't. But if you listen closely, if you look at what Paul is saying, you start to see that the seeds of ending slavery are hidden in this passage of ending slavery one person at a time. It's hidden right here as he starts applying the gospel to slaves and their masters. So looking at what he writes to slaves then, beginning in verse 5, Paul first speaks to the group of people under authority, like he did the past two weeks. He spoke to wives first, he spoke to children first, and so he's speaking to slaves first. And similarly, he is telling them, obey the ones in authority over you. And then he says, why? Why should you do this? He writes, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers. Paul is concerned with shoddy work, with slaves getting away with the bare minimum and only really obeying when the master is watching. I think many of us realize that is not an attitude that is unique to slavery. We had a delightful example this morning down front here as well, that those children who may have had their parents nearby with a watchful eye and a glare of, I will get you, seemed to be sitting slightly more still than children whose parents may have been back there. That's not saying you're wrong to sit back there, but it was a wonderful example of how this works. And it's not just children, it's adults. How many of us instinctively slow down when we see the state trooper on the road? How many of us would work differently if our boss was in the room with us all day? How many students would focus more intently on their homework if the teacher was sitting beside them? How many children would clean up their toys more diligently if parents were standing in the room? Paul understands that all Christians, all people, have a temptation to simply work hard in the sight of others. And he says that is unacceptable. That is eye service. That is people-pleasing. That is not what we are to do. But why? Paul commands work from a sincere heart because we are ultimately serving Jesus Christ, our true Lord and Master. He says, as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. 
Yes, we may be working for slave masters, for employers, for governments, for teachers, but we as Christians are truly working for the Lord, that our ultimate authority is God and He cares about our work. Think about that. God cares about our work, whether it is blue-collar or white-collar, whether we are in the outdoors, in the elements, or stuck in a cubicle. He cares. Whether we are working day shift or night shift, whether we are union or not, God cares about our work. That means that religious work, like being a pastor or a missionary, is not inherently more valuable. Because Paul is writing about the value and importance of the work of slaves, the lowest rung of society in the ancient world, who did the most menial things that nobody really cared about. If God cares about them, then he certainly cares about our work. And God knows about our work because he knows us. That's what we saw in our Old Testament reading from Psalm 139, that God knows us inside and out. And since we belong completely to God, that means our work is his work. And our work, whether it is employment or volunteer work or school work or work around the house, all of our work is for the glory of God. R.C. Sproul encourages us by writing, wherever Christians are rendering a service, whether it's fast food restaurants or whether it is at home, they must understand that such service is ultimately presented not to employers or owners, but to Christ. That is what Paul is showing the slaves. That is their gospel implication that we should sincerely serve others even in the context of slavery or employment as if we were serving the Lord himself. Paul wrote earlier in his letter to the Ephesians in chapter 2, verse 10, that we are God's workmanship, that he has created us for good works, that God has gifted each and every one of us differently to do different kinds of good work in the world. And he's telling us that doing a good job at our job, is a good work. He wants us to do good work at our jobs, whatever that may be. Paul understands that employers and slave masters can be overbearing and cruel, but our work does not reflect them. Our work reflects the one who has worked in us. Because having been baptized into his name, our daily work reflects God because we now represent Christ. And so in that everyday grind of work, the 50th email in the first hour, the third math worksheet that the teacher gives us in the period, the last customer service call before lunch, the 11th hour of the 12-hour shift, are we working for Christ or are we working for the clock? Are we doing good work for the sake of his name to his glory? That's how Paul is challenging slaves and for us, whatever work we're doing. This is true, though, not just of people under authority like slaves and employees. It is true for people in authority, like masters and bosses, that they too are supposed to reflect Christ in their exercise of authority. 
So Paul turns his attention to the masters in verse 9 as well as verse 8 a little bit. And just like his commands to husbands and fathers, Paul's command to the masters carries much of the responsibility because as the ones in authority, they have the greater power to shape the relationship, either for good or for bad. Paul writes to them, Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them. And stop your threatening. Knowing that he, is, he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Did you hear all those notes of similarity and equality? Paul literally commands the masters, do the same as them, as your slaves. That rocks the equality boat. Do the exact same as your slaves. Paul is emphasizing the equality of slaves and masters of all people. Because in God's eyes, slaves and masters are equal. People in authority and people under authority are equal. God does not show partiality or favoritism based on social status, based on power, based on your, your title or your number of degrees or how big your business card is and what it says about all the things you do. That's an important lesson for any of us in authority because many people in power are used to getting looked upon favorably simply because of their position. And Paul says that's not true with God. God's justice shows no partiality. He's not swayed by fame or influence. He does not reverse a sentence because, oh, you're related to so-and-so, or your family has made such generous contributions. God shows no favoritism in those ways. Masters may have been used to getting more privileges than their slaves, but Paul reminds them God does no such thing. There's no partiality for the rich, the popular, the famous, or the important. And so Paul does not want masters and those in authority to think that they can do whatever they want now that they're in power. Rather, he wants masters to also do what is good, to do good work. That no matter our station in life, he writes in verse 8, knowing that whatever good Anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. That our rewards for good work are not just a bonus, a raise, time off, a pat on the back. Our rewards for good work are eternal rewards. For the Lord sees those who do good in his name. That's true for all people. For all Christians, no matter how we work. Because whoever we are, if we are in power and authority or if we are oppressed and at the bottom of the corporate ladder, we are all dead in our sins apart from Christ. And we are only saved by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and not anything we do or any favors that we can get. The gospel levels the playing field for all people in a world filled with systems of inequity. That means Christians, no matter who we are or our status, we are members of the same body. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. 
That's what Paul wrote to Philemon, the Christian slave master. Paul sends Onesimus, one of his slaves, back to him. That Onesimus seems to have run away and been unfaithful, but during his time away, the Lord brought Onesimus to Christ through the ministry of Paul. And so Paul urges Philemon not to punish Onesimus severely because now Onesimus is more than just your slave. He is your brother in Christ. He is equal in the eyes of God, though the world and everyone else would say differently that he is your property and discipline him as you should. So to those of us in authority, are we treating the Christians under our care as brothers and sisters instead of slaves? Yes, we should expect a good job to be done, but we can do so with a heart that has been changed by God. Does the fallen world around us see that we exercise authority differently? Not with fear and intimidation, but with love valuing people and seeing them as equals. That in spite of our differences in the corporate structure, that we are fundamentally equal in the eyes of God. Note again that Paul does not say to Philemon, free Onesimus. Doesn't say that. Most of us would really like Paul to put just a little addendum in there. Oh, by the way, please free your slave because slavery is wrong. He doesn't. Rather, Paul cares more about Philemon's heart change than any policy change he could make. Because Paul knows policy cannot change hearts. But changed hearts can lead to a subversion and change of unjust policies. That is how the gospel changes us. Jesus did not walk the earth and go to the government officials to change laws for justice. He went to the poor, the oppressed, and the outcast and showed that they had value. He went to those living under an unjust law and showed them justice personally so that they saw themselves not primarily as citizens of this world, but as citizens of a heavenly kingdom. And so when Paul writes to slaves and masters, you can see that he is writing and working for a kingdom that is not of this world. While policy change and revolutions can be helpful, there is a greater kind of change he works for. Just like the Emancipation Proclamation did not solve everything, so also a slave rebellion in the Roman Empire would not have fixed everything. It doesn't mean that those kind of policy changes don't matter. They do. They are good. And we can still seek justice in those ways. But policy change has its limits. Whereas heart change is lasting. Paul's hope is that individual Christians, as the body of Christ, will see themselves as equals no matter how the world sees us and tries to separate us. And so we may find ourselves in positions where we are in authority as parents, as employers, as coaches, as civil officials. We may find ourselves in positions where we are under authority as kids, as employees, as citizens. Paul is saying no matter where we find ourselves, let us seek to do good from the heart, 
knowing that we are not serving the structure or the system, but we are serving our king and his kingdom, for he reigns in heaven and reigns forevermore. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, we thank you that you redeem us out of the slavery of sin. But you do not redeem us so that we can go and do whatever we want. Rather, you call us into your service. Paul himself said he was a slave for Christ. Lord, let us see ourselves in a similar way. As those who are signed up to serve you. Help us to see in whatever work it is that we do through the week that we do it for your glory and your honor. That we view one another as equals, whether they are high above us or way beneath us. Lord, help us to be the change as the gospel changes our hearts so that we see one another differently and see as you see. Lord, give us that vision for the kingdom. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.